As you're taking your seats, I'm going to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to Psalm 19. And we are in the middle, or excuse me, just starting off on a series called Transformed, Learning to Think Biblically. And we want to begin our series by thinking biblically about the Bible itself. As I said last week, as we're going to explore a whole bunch of different topics and see what God's Word has to say about them, it's important that we begin by understanding what the Word of God says about itself. Why is it something that we can turn to for the answers to all of life's questions and all of life's issues? We saw last week that the Bible is totally trustworthy, and we saw also that it is absolutely authoritative. It is inspired. God breathed, and therefore, it holds for us all authority over our lives, and nobody demonstrated this more than Jesus Christ himself. Nobody submitted himself more perfectly and wholly to the word of God. Nobody more than Jesus Christ. He is for us the model of what it means to look to the word of God and to understand the word of God. And everything that the word of God says about the word of God, Jesus Christ wholeheartedly embraced. And we're going to see that theme woven through the message again this morning as we look at two more topics related to God's word. Attacks on God's word are as old as time itself. Attacks on the trustworthiness, on the authority, and on the clarity and sufficiency of God's word can be seen in the very first chapters of the Bible. Satan, as he approaches Adam and Eve in the garden, first questions God's word, trying to undermine the authority that it had, the place of authority that it had in governing their lives. Satan questions God's word. Has God really said... Now, up to this point in the Garden of Eden and in humanity's existence, there have been no questions, only answers. There was no mysteries, there were no dilemmas, there were no problems, and the question of Satan is designed to start Eve down a path that legitimizes her rejection of what God has said. Are you sure, Eve, that that's what God meant when he said that? Are you sure that it can't be interpreted a different way? Are you convinced that you heard and understood it correctly? Are you sure that's what God meant? Now, remember, at this point in history, there had never even been a thought of questioning God's word. Not even a thought. God's word was perfectly clear it was easily understood. It made absolute sense. It was absolutely right. It was trustworthy. It was authoritative. And it was sufficient for all of life's needs. But this question started a series of attacks that would lead to unimaginable actions on the part of Adam and Eve and unimaginable consequences Satan attacks the trustworthiness of God's word and the authority of God's word by undermining the clarity of God's word and the sufficiency of God's word. And those are the two things I want to talk about today. The clarity of God's word and the sufficiency of God's word. So let's begin with the clarity. The Bible is consistently clear. The Bible is consistently clear, and we see this in, in a number of passages cover to cover throughout the Bible, both explicitly stated and by implication, God's word is intended to be consistently clear. And I want to begin just by reading the words of Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8, and listen as we read it together. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Today, attacks on the clarity of God's word mimic um, the attacks that Satan launched against Adam and Eve. Did God really say... And, and really, you have to see in that initial question, Satan is actually suggesting that they haven't rightly understood, that actually God's word isn't as clear as they think it was. How can you be so sure? We hear things like this all the time. If God's word is so clear, how come there's so much disagreement over what people believe? I mean, I've, I've got books on my shelf in my office that say three views on this and four views on this and five views on this. Or, or there's so many different interpretations of the Bible. How, if it's so clear, how come there's so many different interpretations of the Bible? Or, or maybe you've heard this over the last decade. Truth is relative and understanding is determined by the reader or the hearer. It's subjective. Or maybe you come out of a, a Catholic background where tradition or a person of authority has the ability to trump scripture or augment scripture or has the corner on interpreting scripture and only they have the final say or the final word. Let's be honest, it's confusing. And to make it even more challenging, we have the words of Peter in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 on the screen right behind me. Listen to this. This is Peter writing and he says, and count the patience of our Lord is salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, he's talking about Paul's writings here, scripture, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. In other words, Peter references Paul's writings as scripture, first of all, but notice what he says. He says, this is Peter talking. He says, look, I understand that there are many things in Paul's writings that are actually hard to understand, things that can be twisted and distorted as people do with the rest of scriptures. Even Peter is writing in a time where the word of God was being distorted and twisted and it was producing excuse me, great confusion in the minds of many believers. The clarity of scripture, let me just qualify this, does not mean that every verse of the Bible will be patently obvious to everyone. It doesn't mean that everything is gonna be equally as clear as everything else in the Bible, but it does mean that ordinary people, this is, this is good news for me and you, ordinary people using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be known, of what must be believed, and what must be obeyed for them to be faithful and fruitful Christians. Let me say that again, I think it's so important that we get this right at the gates. Ordinary people using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be known, believed, and obeyed for them to be faithful and fruitful Christians. And in Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8, we see here the psalmist, David, really describing for us the character of Scripture. And, and you'll notice it's a beautiful, beautiful poem of what Scripture is. And it's said to be such that even, notice this, the simple can understand it rightly and be made wise. I love that in verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
And here, the simple person is not merely somebody who lacks intellectual ability, although that is included in this concept, but someone who lacks sound judgment, who is prone to making mistakes, and who is easily led astray. And you have to see what, what the Word of God is telling us about itself here. God's Word is so understandable, it is so clear that even this kind of person is made wise by it. This should be a great encouragement to all believers. No believer should think that himself or herself is too foolish to read Scripture, is not intellectually up to standards, and can't possibly understand it. The Scriptures make it clear that even, even the simple are able to glean wisdom from the Word of God. And I think it's helpful to know that when God reveals, he, listen, He communicates, when God communicates, He communicates to reveal, not to obscure. God intends Himself to be understood. And so clarity is something that flows right out of the very character and nature of who God is. Now, one of the most prominent attacks against the Bible in our day comes from um, a, a postmodern mindset. Postmodernism attacks the ideals of modernism, which put a premium on being certain about things. The modernist mindset put a premium on being certain, on being dogmatic, on believing uh, that propositions were clear and understandable, and, and invariably that led to a sense of arrogance and intolerance towards those who disagreed. In contrast, listen, postmodernism claims a relativity of all truth claims. They embrace the, the wide possibility of a word like truth. I mean, what really, what does truth mean? They approach other groups with tolerance and cultural sensitivity. These are the hallmarks of the postmodern movement. You tolerate everybody, uh, you embrace everybody, and, and you can't say that somebody is actually wrong. You can't be too certain about what you believe. You can't suggest a propositional truth claims can be clearly and persuasively understood and embraced. And we live in a, a postmodern society that rejects certainty and dogmatism as being very narrow-minded, intolerant, and actually arrogant. We're claimed to be arrogant if we, if we stand fast upon something with certainty, especially when it comes to religious truth claims. This mentality, sadly, has even bled into the church. Even church leaders at times are hesitant to dogmatically preach propositional truths of Scripture for fear of not appearing to be humble. You've heard the illustration. This is often the, the claim when it comes to religious pluralism and, and the idea of certainty. You've heard the, 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 the analogy, right, haven't you, of the, you know, the six individuals who are all uh, touching a different part of the elephant, and, and one person is, you know, they're all blind, and one person is touching the side of the elephant and thinks that they're touching a wall, and another blind man is touching the tail and thinks that he's got a hold of a rope, and another blind man is, is holding onto the ear and thinks he's got a fan in his hand, and so on and so on down the line. You see, the idea of the world says nobody can know for certain what they actually believe is true. But there's two problems with this analogy. The first is this, somebody is telling this story from the vantage point of being able to see the whole elephant with certainty and with clarity. The second problem with this illustration is this, listen, it presupposes that the elephant hasn't actually spoken and told people exactly what he is. 
But when it comes to God, that's exactly what he's done, right? Can you imagine that? If the elephant said, oh no, that's not a wall, that's my side, and that's not a fan, that's my ear, and that's not a rope, it's my tail. Now listen, listen, are those individuals humble for not listening and for declaring that they can't be certain even when the elephant has spoken? When it comes to God, God has been so clear about who he is and what he says. And so therefore, just, just allow that, that illustration now to infu- influ- influence you, the way we're thinking about the clarity of Scripture. If God has spoken and he's spoken clearly, it is not humble. Instead, it is arrogant if we choose not to believe what God has said about himself. If we choose to reject it or dismiss it or push it to the side and want to claim whatever we choose instead. I vividly remember, and I've had multiple conversations like this, but having a conversation a few years ago about the Bible itself and about the nature of the gospel and having a conversation with somebody who actually claimed to be a Christian and who was, had this very postmodern mindset about themselves. And I remember in this conversation declaring with certainty the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and laying out, listen, you know, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Jesus Christ was a real human being. He lived, he died, and he rose again. And all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved when they repent of their sins and trust in Christ. I remember explaining the gospel like this to someone who claimed to be a Christian, and they looked at me and they said, well, that's absolutely arrogant that you think you can be so certain about that. How dare you? You can't be certain. This is what they said to me. This is a direct quote. You can't be certain about anything. To which I said, are you certain about that? It's a self-defeating argument, isn't it? And it's hypocritical, isn't it? Isn't that such a hypocritical way to live your life? I quoted this in our last series. Francis Schaeffer says, all thoughts can be thought, but not all thoughts can be lived. There are certain things you may want to believe, but are impossible to live out consistently. It's not possible to be a a, a relativist, not in the ultimate sense. Everybody wants to be certain when they walk into a bank and get their bank statement, correct? Every person who says they can't, you can't be certain about anything wants to make sure their kids understand when they say something, it's concrete and it is truth and needs to be obeyed. And we can go on and give multiple examples of how it is so hypocritical and inconsistent to say you can't be certain about anything. Is most of God's word difficult to understand? That's a great question. Is most of this book that we hold here actually really difficult to understand? The, the simple answer is no. Actually, in the, by the grace of God, most of this book is actually very easy to understand. That doesn't mean there aren't hard things in there, but the Old Testament and New Testament frequently affirm that what is written is able to be understood by ordinary believers. So what does the Bible say about its own clarity? We've already looked at Psalm 19 just briefly and saw how the psalmist David says that it, is, it makes wise the simple, but I want you to consider the words of Deuteronomy 29, 29 and 30, and they'll be on the screen behind me here as well. You can mark this down. And we love to quote Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. We love that, right? That there's, there's mystery in terms of what God has not revealed. But the second half of this verse is equally as important, maybe more important. In fact, this is kind of the point that God is wanting to make to the nation of Israel. You don't need to worry about the things I haven't revealed. What you do need to worry about is the things that I have given to you. Listen to what it says there, right? But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, 
that we may do all the words of the law. I just want you to, to notice this. From the beginning of the Bible, when God spoke, the requirement of his people was that they heard it, that they understood it, that they believed it, and that they obeyed it. It was utterly clear. The implication is that what has been revealed is consistently clear. So much so that the expectation of all that has been revealed is that it is to be obeyed. In other words, because it is so utterly clear, those who have it are actually accountable to know it, to believe it, and to do it. The New Testament reiterates the same point, right? James. James says, do not be just hearers of the word, but doers also. And I love the... uh, the passage of scripture, we, we read this whenever we do a parent-child dedication, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and it's not up on the screen, but you're probably familiar with it where the people of God are told that they are to take God's word and that they are to, as parents, I mean, this is so critical, right, that we are to talk about it when we sit down and when we walk by the way and we're to put it, uh, uh, the frontlet, frontlets of our eyelids, you know, like it's supposed to be ever before us. And I just, I think the implication we need to draw from that is very clear. God expects his word to be known, understood, and obeyed. Listen to what it says in verse six. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your, in your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. These commands are utterly foolish and unrealistic, listen, and problematic if God's word is not clear. We cannot be accountable to do what we cannot understand, what has not been clearly laid out. In the Psalms, the word of God is compared to a light. Listen to Psalm 119, 105. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 130 says this, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. There's that word again. Some some claim that only scholars can rightly understand the Bible. Yet what I want you to see is that Paul, when we look at the New Testament writings, Paul is writing his epistles, as are all of the other authors in Scripture, not to a group of elite pastors or scholars, but to the churches. You'll often read at the beginning of Paul's letters that he's writing to the church in Corinth or the church in Galatia or the church in Colossae. It it is written with the expectation that this letter will be read out loud to the people, that it will be circulated, it's even commanded at times in the New Testament to be circulated amongst the churches and amongst the people. What about Jesus? What did Jesus think about the clarity of scriptures? Jesus himself and his teachings, his conversations and his disputes, he never responds to any question with a hint of blaming the Old Testament scriptures for being unclear. Jesus assumes that people are able to read and to rightly understand the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, take your Bibles and turn to Luke 16. Luke chapter 16. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story. 
in verse 19, of a rich man and Lazarus. And he's doing it to prove a point. He's, he's speaking to the Pharisees who think that they've got a corner on the religious market, think they have a deeper understanding of the Scriptures than they really do. They're very self-righteous, legalistic, and verse 19 tells the story. Let's just read the story. It's a great, it's a great story with such important truth. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores, and the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now just pause there for a minute. You can see in this story, Jesus is making an incredibly important spiritual truth. And there's a lot going on here, but part of this is to show the Pharisees that just because they had access to the Word of God and just because they they had knowledge, quote-unquote, of the truth, and they had great position in this life doesn't mean they have a free pass into heaven. And the people they despised and rejected and, and looked at, the poor and the needy and the sinners, those people who they looked at and said, these people don't have any place with God. They don't have the blessing in favor of God. It's us. We're the important ones. We're the ones God loves. Those are so often the very people who, who repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ because they're so desperate and so needy, unlike the, this rich man Lazarus who depicts the Pharisees. They're not needy, they're not dependent, they think they have everything all together, they think somehow that they have earned the God's favor. And here are these two men now in very, very different places in eternity. And this, this man, uh, Lazarus, or excuse me, the rich man, he's looking at Lazarus and he, he wants some pain relief because of the torment he's experiencing and it's not possible, and so he, he looks where he is, and he, he, knows, he knows that it's so horrific, it's so terrible, and that his five brothers could also end up here if somebody doesn't explain to them the truth. And so he begs, he begs Abraham in this picture is depicting God. He begs him to send Send this man, Lazarus, back to tell his brothers, to warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But listen to this. This is, this is the most powerful part of the story, verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
The point is so powerfully clear. Jesus is saying, don't you see? They have everything they need. They have the word of God. They have the scriptures. And they clearly explain the path of salvation and the path of righteousness. They have everything they need. Let them hear the scriptures. This is so consistent with the way Jesus spoke. I mean, it's interesting. As you read through the Gospels, you never hear Jesus in his disagreements and conversations about the scriptures, say something like this, oh, I, I see how your problem arose. You're, you're right, God wasn't very clear about that. Again and again, Jesus answers questions with statements like this. Listen, these are direct quotes from scripture. Have you not read? Have you never read the scriptures? Or even something like this, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So why is there such confusion and disagreement. Why do we at times, if we're honest, why do we struggle to understand God's word? Whether he is speaking to scholars or untrained common people, Jesus' response always assumes, listen, that the blame for misunderstanding any teaching of scripture is not to be placed on the scriptures themselves, but on those who misunderstand or fail to accept what is written. I jotted down a few reasons here why I think we can misunderstand the Bible, and I just wrote down five. You can feel free to write these down if you want. I, could, I had a list of about 20, just so you know, and I whittled it down. thought that would be a little more helpful for you. Um, so I just want to give you five things that I think are really, really important for us to understand, reasons why we can misunderstand the Bible, even as Christians, but some of these relate to being unbelievers as well. The first one specifically does. Well, the first is blindness, blindness. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The, the picture we have here is this, that you cannot rightly understand the Word of God if you are spiritually blind. And that is every unbeliever, every, every person who has not repented of their sin and trusted Jesus Christ falls into this category of being a natural person and we need the Spirit of God to give us understanding of the word of God because it is spiritually discerned. Another great example of this, I think even, even and it's, it's just debatable whether or not these people are believers or not, but it works either way. Luke 24, 45, again, remember the, the, the road to Emmaus as Jesus is walking along with these men and they, they can't understand what's just happened with the death of Jesus and Jesus well, you know, has veiled his identity before them and it says in Luke 24, 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. They needed the supernatural power of God to open their minds to grant them understanding, and every one of us needs that same truth. Blindness is often a reason why people fail to understand the Bible. Here's the second thing, stubbornness. Stubbornness. Here's what I mean by that. Listen to Ephesians 4.18. It says that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. This is, again, specifically speaking of unbelievers who cannot see and believe the truth of the word of God because they're alienated from the life of God. They are spiritually dead, but the reason they're spiritually dead is because of the hardness of their heart. They love their sin. They love to live in the ignorance of the truth. And if I can make an application to even believers, I believe that stubbornness is one of the primary ways that prevents us from understanding rightly the word of God. 
our own stubbornness, here's what I mean by that, our own hardness of heart, our own love of sin, our own predispositions. You know, sometimes we approach the Word of God and we already have our minds made up, right? You ever been there? You ever done that? Guilty, right? I think I know, I've been taught something all my life, and so I approach the Word of God in kind of this stubborn position, thinking that I've got it all figured out, and so I can't accurately interpret what's in front of me because it's already being filtered through a lens that is tainted. And I think as Christians, so often we approach the Word of God very selfishly, trying to justify ourselves. That's a, that's a form of stubbornness. I think as Christians, we, we often approach the Word of God faithlessly, you know, not really believing that God's Word is, is what it is, not believing that it's powerful enough to speak into a, our hearts and our situations, not believing that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And in our stubbornness, we actually create an obstacle for us actually understanding the truth of God's Word to greater degrees. Here's the third thing, laziness. This is probably one of the greater problems in our culture. Laziness is one of the primary reasons we cannot rightly understand the Word of God. I've already talked a bit about this, but you know, as Peter wrote, to Paul, wrote about Paul, there's not, and not everything in Scripture is actually easy to understand. And, and listen to what Paul writes to a pastor, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.15. He tells him to do this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. In other words, Timothy, part of your role as a pastor, as a preacher, is to make sure you're handling this word carefully like a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing this, doing the hard work, digging into it. And I just want to suggest to you, if that's, if that's said to a pastor whose primary job is to unfold and explain the Word of God, certainly hard work, discipline, and diligence is necessary for every one of us if we are to extract all of the meaning that the Scriptures are loaded with. The Scriptures are not written you know, sometimes this is difficult because, you know, we look at the Scriptures and we understand that they're written thousands of years ago. And by the way, Jesus, when he spoke, was speaking to Jews who were removed from the writers as well by a thousand years, 1,500 word, or years as well, excuse me. But he still expected them to be able to do the hard work to understand it. I like to think of it like this, the Word of God is not written to us, but it is written for us. It was written in a time, in a context, by a person to a people, but the New Testament affirms that everything that was written was for our benefit, and it was to bless us as well. And it takes hard work to figure out what it meant then, so we know how it applies now. And let me just encourage you, listen, it is worth the hard work of digging into the Scriptures, of getting some tools that are going to help you understand to greater degrees. Here's the fourth thing, prayerlessness. Prayerlessness prevents us from understanding God's word. Psalm 119.18 is such a, a beautiful, beautiful verse. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. This is, this is so important. I, I, I dare say that any time we approach God's word and we do not approach it with a prayerful attitude, we are missing out on what God has for us. You see, approaching God's word and saying, God, 
And I would encourage you to do this every time you open God's word. God, open my eyes so that I might see the wonderful truths of your law, that I might behold the beauty and the majesty, that I might find joy in understanding. Like, this is what God calls us to, and we need to remember that God is the one who provides understanding. And so when we pray, we depend upon him to provide what only he can provide. The last thing, I've made up a word for you because I, I couldn't think of something better. A community list. I'm just going to say that. Your community list. You don't have a community. You isolate yourself and you want to be you know, the supreme authority in interpreting the scriptures. And, and listen, while you don't need a higher authority to tell you the meaning of the word of God, God never intended us to interpret scriptures all by ourselves without, listen, without the help of other people, without their perspective and their wisdom and their insight. Nehemiah 8.8 when they, they found the law that they had been missing for so long, it says this, that they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I love that. See, what God requires is spiritual sight that only he can give, humility and teachability that enable us to look past our own selfish motives, presuppositions, and sinful desires. He requires diligence and hard work to study the scriptures and to dig deep to understand what is, what is hard and challenging. He requires that we approach his word in humble dependence, asking him for the help, wisdom, and insight that is needed. And lastly, he requires that we reject an independent and autonomous approach to the Bible. I, I've heard people proudly proclaim that they don't read other books, they only read the Bible. And can I just tell you that I think that is a really silly way to approach the Bible. And listen, I, I love, I think the Word of God needs to be the primary text, but we, we need to remember what the Word of God says about the way God has gifted the church. God has gifted the church in Ephesians chapter four with teachers, with those who are able to explain and unfold some of those hard things. And that's exactly what books are. We have generations of faithful, biblical scholars, pastors, teachers, who have done hard work to help us understand the truth. I just wanna encourage you that I think the Bible is so consistently clear. God has communicated so that we might know and believe the truth, that the truth might set us free and that the truth might give us everything we need to live a life that is pleasing to him. And by the way, it does just that. We need nothing more than the Bible. We need nothing more than the Bible. And that leads into our second point. The Bible is supremely sufficient. The Bible is supremely sufficient for life and godliness, and I'll encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. I told you last week we'd be landing back here, and that's exactly what we're going to do. 2 Timothy 3. And I want to read beginning in verse, beginning in verse 14. Let's do that. Paul, again, writing to Timothy 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 says this, But as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And here it is, listen to this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The sufficiency of Scripture means that it contains all the words of God that He intends us to have. And it provides us with everything we need to know for salvation, for believing in Him, and for obeying Him perfectly. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says this, he says, in Scripture alone, we are to search for God's words to us. It reminds us that God considers what he has told us in the Bible to be enough for us and that we should rejoice in the great revelation that he has given us and be content with it. In a time and a day, listen, and this has been consistent throughout church history where people look for more than the Bible. They they believe they would just, if they just received a word from God, you know, we have this. Experientially, I just, if God spoke to me, I mean, that would be amazing and everything would change if God, if I heard the voice of God speaking to me, and I just want to encourage you, God has spoken to you. He's spoken to you through the word. You don't need anything else. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and excellency. Right here, he's preserved it for us. So I just, I want to hear God speak. Read the word. I really want to hear him speak out loud. Read the Bible out loud. Scripture is enough. I I want you to be so utterly convinced of that. You don't need to be seeking another word from God. There is no other word. This is the only word right here. It gives us enough of what we need to know to be saved, but beyond that, to have a thriving relationship with him, to enjoy life the way that he has designed it to be enjoyed. I think we struggle with this, like I mentioned, and, and though, though there are many people out there looking for a, an additional word from God or another book to add on top of the Bible, this, as we've looked at last week, this is the only inspired, God-breathed book right here. And God's word is an extension of himself. And it's interesting, I think, that we as Christians, we we say we believe in the sufficiency of God's word, but so often we don't live like we believe in the sufficiency of God's word. And we we do, in our hearts, sometimes want more than the word of God. We want something additional to the word of God. I think that oftentimes we say to God, sometimes unknowingly, God, I trust you, I just don't trust your word. Just think about that for a minute. I trust you, I just don't trust your word, God. God, I really love you, but I really don't love your word. I don't believe it has enough for me. And we say that in a whole bunch of different ways. We say that specifically in how we live, in how we we don't read the word of God, and how we don't meditate on the word of God, how we don't memorize the word of God, the place on our nightstand where it collects dust. We say, God, I trust you, but oftentimes we say, I just don't trust your word. I don't believe it's sufficient for me, God. And that's the equivalent of telling you know, your spouse, it would be like me looking at my wife and saying, honey, I really want a relationship with you, I just don't care what you have to say. 
Or, you know, like, like Sarah, I want a relationship with you. You just can't talk to me, okay? It's not going to go over well. Psalm 138, be on the screen behind me. Listen to the primary place God's word is to take. I bow down, the psalmist says, toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Isn't that amazing? The the two things are, are paralleled as being the things that have been exalted most of all. God, you've exalted your name and your word, and the two are inextricably linked together. If we say we exalt his name, we must also exalt his word. Look at Psalm 56, verse 4. It says this again on the screen behind me. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Do you see the connection there? If you say you trust God, you must also trust his word. It's impossible to say you trust God and not trust his word as well. The word of God is birthed out of the character of God. It's the source for all that we believe and we need nothing else for life and godliness. And I want you just to look at a few words with me in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and here's this this helpful word and it is profitable. It is profitable. This word focuses on in on the sufficiency of the Bible. The word can be translated like this. It is beneficial, it is productive or sufficient. In other words, it is for something. It is a means to an end. It is accomplishing something. It is sufficient to meet all the spiritual needs of God's people. We read, study scripture so that we are conformed into the image of Christ. That's the reason we go to the word of God. It isn't a book for winning arguments. It isn't a book for simply accumulating a lot of facts about God or history. It is a book that molds and shapes us into the image of Jesus Christ. It's so important that we understand this. Listen, Bible knowledge does not equal maturity. So many people make that mistake. As I mentioned before, we are called to be doers of the word. The Bible is both for education and for edification. It is for information and predominantly for transformation. And it's profitable. Notice there's four things laid out here in the text. The first one is this, for teaching. It's profitable for teaching. That's the same word in Greek that's used for doctrine. It's for sound doctrine. In other words, it's the source for all the truth that we believe, all the truth that we need to know about God. It's the source of all the learning and studying and understanding that we need. Scripture should permeate our day. It should affect every aspect of our lives. And I want to go back for a moment to Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. And it's on the screen behind me, I believe. There it is. And I, just, I want you just to see how the idea of teaching is to permeate our lives, especially if you're a parent, but you need to understand that you are to teach God's word and be taught God's word. Again, these are the commands that I command you today. They shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. I mean, you're just so, your life is to be permeated with the word of God always before you, always on your heart, always on your mind, always on your lips. 
It is to inform every single area of your life, everything without exception. And so many of us, we struggle. We say things like, I don't have time to to spend this kind of energy in God's word. I don't have time to do this. My life is really hectic and it's really busy. Hey, are you sure about that? I want to just do something real quick or a little experiment. I'm going to take this passage and every time we see the word of God or the concept of the word of God, I'm going to replace it with, with this word, iPhone. Okay? Just play along with me. Let's see how this works out. This iPhone I have given you today shall be on your heart. You shall give it to your children and you shall text on it when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, you shall look at your phone and when you rise, the first thing you shall do is look for your iPhone. You shall bind it as a sign on your hand and shall always remain in front of your eyes. Okay, I think you get the point, right? Maybe, maybe, just maybe we do have the capability to focus on God's word throughout the day. What if the first thing we did when we woke up is not reach for our iPhone to check our social media, but reach for the word of God? What if instead of checking our email or social media or a website before we closed our eyes at night, we put the word of God in front of our face and we read it and we studied it and we prayed it? What if we had a down minute throughout the day and instead of reaching for our phone to check something out on the internet, we pulled out the word of God. We were renewed by it, refreshed by it, encouraged by it. What if we memorized the word of God so that it dwelt in our hearts and minds, affecting us even when we weren't thinking directly about it? It was shaping the way we were living our lives and making decisions. You say, it sounds like a lot. It sounds really challenging. But listen, Paul has already reminded us in verse 14, but as for you, he says, in other words, you are supposed to be different. We're called, called to be different. Every one of us as followers of Christ are called to be radically different. You are to be different, church. And to do that, you're going to have to be rooted in God's word in a way that affects all of your life. We need to teach it, but we need to be in it, saturated by it, understanding it. And I want to encourage you to get in the word of God. The second word he chooses there is reproof. See, not only does the word of God teach us, it reproves us. The idea there is to let somebody know that they're in error, that they they were wandering off the path. You've gone off the path. You need to get back on the straight and narrow. You're walking down the path of destruction. And and I just want to encourage you, the scriptures, we're called to use them to reprove one another, to warn one another if we've walked off the path. And we don't like this. We like to be independent and autonomous. But the call of the Christian and the call of the church, listen, is to, listen, in love and with the scriptures, come alongside each other. Sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's painful, but we do this because we love each other. We see each other walking down paths that are going to lead to a very dangerous place and a place that actually dishonors God. And all of us need to be willing, listen, to to reprove, but we need to be willing to receive reproof. So much, look, so often, let's be honest, it's much easier to reprove others, it's much more difficult to receive reproof. 
And by the way, we don't just call out sin without offering the grace of Christ, the hope of change, and the support of a community. It's not like we go up to people like, hey, you're going off the path, good luck with that. We are called then, notice the next word, to correct. We're called to correct, to bring back on the path and restore. That's the idea. And then we're called, the next word there is to be trained in righteousness. You see, Scripture trains us in righteousness for all of life, not because it tells us what to do in every situation, listen, but because it makes us the right kind of person for any situation. We need to be able to understand that to continue in our faith and to follow the Lord. We need the Word of God. And I just want to talk a minute about setting aside time every day to be in God's Word. And instantly, some of you are like, okay, I feel really guilty. And you're just going to heap some guilt upon me. That's not, that's not what my goal is here. I am not trying to guilt you into reading your Bible. I don't think that's helpful for you or honoring to the Lord. I hope you see this morning, listen, the necessity of God's word for your life because of who God is and what God's word accomplishes. I want us to be motivated rightly when we approach God's word. That's how we're going to get the most out of it. Some of you are saying, really, every day? Do I really need to read the Bible every day? Look, we don't want to be legalistic about it, that's for sure, but let me just, let me just suggest something to you. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, do you remember what he says? He says to Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Okay, that's great. It's a great, it's a great verse, and thank you for sharing that. What's your point? Well, here's my point. How often do you eat food? How often do you eat food? Everybody's too quiet, right? I don't know, like at least every day? Is that fair? At least every day, right? That, that's my point. Here, we don't live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and I just want to just apply that to your life. We, we eat food every day because we need it to sustain us. Listen, so too, we need to feast on the word of God every day to sustain us spiritually. You need it desperately. How often should you read the Bible? Let's just think about this a little bit more. How often do you face temptation? How often do you face problems in this life? How often do you face pressures of the world around you? How often do we need guidance, instruction? How often do we need hope and encouragement, right? Every day, the word of God is profitable for us. Again, not out of guilt. I'm not for status. Not, you know, we're not looking for anybody to you know, read their Bible to be some kind of super Christian. You woke up at four o'clock this morning, read the Bible after you prayed for three hours. Good for you. We read it because we know we need to be trained in righteousness, not legalistic, but disciplined. Talking to my wife every day is not legalistic, it's healthy. Right? <laughs> Listen, it gives you joy. And by the way, if you, if you only read the Bible when you feel like it, you're not going to read the Bible very much. But you always need it. Even when you don't feel like it, read it and trust that God's going to change your heart, change your attitude and your perspective. Read for joy of what it provides for you and produces. You can't outgrow it. It's the very means of growth. Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And look at verse 17. Here's the consequences of that. The man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. Complete. Apart from the Bible, you are incomplete. 
Christian, you need to hear that. Apart from the Bible, you are incomplete. You don't have the tools you need to accomplish the task that's in front of you and the calling that God has given you. Christians without the Bible are like carpenters without a hammer, a soldier without a sword, a runner without shoes. And here's the reality. We've been called to run a race. We've been called to fight the good fight. We've been called to endure. You've got to be equipped by the Scriptures. Satan wants you and me to doubt God's word. He wants us to reject God's word and to avoid God's word. He loves it when the word of God is sitting on a nightstand or in a drawer getting covered with dust. God wants you to trust his word. He wants you to embrace God's, his word and to cherish his word. And I want to encourage some of you this morning to drive a stake into the ground today to declare right now in your heart that God's word is totally trustworthy. It must be the absolute authority in your life that it is consistently clear and it is supremely sufficient for life and godliness. To reject scripture is ultimately to reject God himself. And to submit to scripture is to submit to God. What will your response be to God's word? Will you respond this morning with skepticism or with words of faith? With words of indifference or words of trust and allegiance. Words initiate a response. They call for a response. That's the nature of relationships. You need to choose this day that the word of God will be the authority in everything you believe and the way you live your life. That God's word will determine how I live, what I think, how I treat others, how I deal with sin and temptation, how I love others. You need to drive a stake in the ground today and say, I will stand on the word of God and I will stand under the word of God. It is enough for me. I've read this before, but I I just felt it was so fitting to close with this again. If you go to a hotel room and you pull out the Gideon Bible, at the very front of the Bible has one of the most beautiful introductions that's ever been written about a Bible. And let me just close as I read this for you. It says this, the Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure." It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Father, we believe your word is true. And we believe, Lord, it is the only means of providing us with the knowledge of salvation through Jesus Christ. We believe, Lord, it is the only thing that is able to transform us into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, as we begin this series this summer, we ask, God, that you would transform us. God, we we believe 
so strongly in the word of God, but we, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe more firmly and that the way we live our life would be a demonstration of how firmly we believe in the word of God, how powerfully we believe it will change and transform us. So God, I pray that you would help us, help us, Lord, to more regularly read your word, study it, memorize it, meditate on it, teach it, Lord, God, would you make us hungry for your word? Increase our longing and our appetite for the word. And God, may we find it, Lord, ever so satisfying to our soul. May we feast on the word of God and may we feast on its greatest contents, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at him through the pages of scripture, that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. God, do this, we pray, for our good and for the glory of your great name. Amen.